Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Please view our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Father Nicholas, the myrrh vessel of thy relics protects the city of Myra. Wherefore, as thou didst appear by dream and a vision to the king and didst free from death bonds and imprisonment the prisoners who had been unjustly condemned, be thou even now manifest by thy appearance as thou wast then and art at all times. Intercede on our behalf for the salvation of souls. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our speaker this evening is an acclaimed scholar of arts and letters, an experienced educator, and an insightful cultural critic. Dr. Anthony Eslin is a prolific author with over 1,500 articles in both scholarly and general interest journals, a senior editor of Touchstone, a journal of mere Christianity, and Chronicles magazine. Dr. Eslin is known for his elegant essays on the faith and for his clear social commentaries. His articles appear regularly in Crisis, First Things, Inside the Vatican, Public Discourse, The Catholic Thing, and Magnificat, among others. The author of over 30 books, Dr. Esselin is well known for his acclaimed three-volume verse translation of Dante's Divine Comedy. His own book-length sacred poem, The Hundredfold, Songs for the Lord, is a unified poem composed of original lyrics, dramatic monologues, and hymns. His most recent book is titled The Lies of Our Time with Regnery Press. Professor Eslin is a frequent speaker at colleges and church and civic institutions, and he currently serves as the Distinguished Professor of Literature at Thales College in Wake Forest, North Carolina. For more from Dr. Eslin, you can visit his online magazine, Word and Song, at anthonyeslin.com. It is a great honor and a pleasure to welcome back to the Institute, Dr. Anthony Eslin. So I have the unenviable task here of trying to be uh, 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 a teacher of the poetry of the prologue of the gospel, John, in one hour. Uh, of course, the, the uh, 100 hours is not adequate for it. So you will forgive me if there are going to be many, many things that I simply don't get to. But please, um, if there is something like that you really want to know about what I would say, but uh, ask questions afterwards. I'm going to begin with the beginning. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, one of the premises of my book, In the Beginning Was the Word, uh, an annotated reading of the Gospel of John, is that John is thinking in uh, and writing in poetic terms, okay? In fact, sometimes in poetic forms, but he's writing in a language that's not his mother tongue, right? Uh, it, it, he is composing in Greek, which is his, probably his third language after Aramaic, his mother tongue, and Hebrew, 
which would have been to Aramaic rather, rather as Latin is to Italian. Um, and uh, uh, so, so Greek is the third, third language. Um, and when you compose in a, in a language that is your third language, um, there are certain characteristics uh, that, uh, well, well, that the vocabulary, that the, the breadth of vocabulary is not going to be there, okay? Uh, and you're going to uh, rely upon repetition a good deal. Um, you, you can imagine yourself trying to be, uh, as I said in my book, a preacher whose native tongue is English speaking in French, your third language, uh, to a congregation in Haiti who speak French. Um, the kinds of habits that show up are those that show up in the Gospel of John. And yet, despite that, this is, to my mind, the most poetic of all of the works of the New Testament, perhaps the most poetic, other than the Psalms, of all of the books of the Bible uh, as a whole. Okay, um, And I think this is because John has meditated very deeply upon mysteries, and um, the mysteries are the ultimate ones, and uh, he is not he is not pretending to have solved them. They're impossible to solve. They are to be contemplated and treasured, uh, meditated upon, uh, loved so that they will shed light upon one another. But this causes him constantly to revisit uh, the same mysteries, the same words that for him are charged with mystery, um, to go back to them again and again. Um, it's a kind of narrative that I think he picked up from our Lord himself, because you see Jesus doing this kind of thing in the other Gospels. Judge not lest you be judged, for with what judgment, you know, condemn not lest you be condemned, for with what judgment you judge, so he goes back to the word judgment, so shall you be judged. Um, and with what measure you measure, so shall it be measured out to you. Um, why do you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a plank in your own eye? Uh, a hypocrite, you, you see that Jesus is, his method of preaching is constantly to revisit the same terms that he has used. This is quite memorable. And sometimes I believe that Jesus is actually delivering a Semitic poem, an Aramaic poem. The Lord's Prayer is a poem, okay? It, it makes it really easy for the uh, hearers to keep these things in mind, okay? Uh, to get them by heart. And this habit, John seems to have picked up, okay? Um, if I read to you uh, the the prologue and ask you to think how, how many times and how many ways uh, John is revisiting a word that he has used, okay? Um, but not until he has used another word, and then he's just weaving them back and forth, back and forth, uh, all throughout. Um, it, it leaps out at you. It is, it is like a fingerprint here. Um, nobody else in the New Testament other than Jesus and his sayings does this, unless it's the author of the book of Revelation, and uh, that's very suggestive, okay, for people who say that John did not write that.
But listen to it now. I'm going to go through it, it slowly just to show you that that this is happening. Um, and then we're going to get to the first verse. In the beginning was the word. The first verse itself does it. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men, and the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men might through him believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become sons of God, to them that believe in his name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth from Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath caused him to appear before us. He has made him manifest to us. Now, I would say that there are about... Um, a good 20 uh, motifs, words, images, same words, same images that are being played upon in that whole prologue again and again and again and again. And they are interwoven and that this is quite deliberate on John's part. It is his echo of what you will find Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount, in those passages in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the same, same sort of thing. Okay. Um, I think that this kind of thing is uh, almost impossible to imitate, all right? Um, and we don't find it elsewhere in the New Testament. I think, too, and I, I, I say so that, um, that it is appropriate because what John is trying to get at here is the mystery of the relationship between the Father and the Son. Ultimately, it is the mystery of the Trinity itself. How can the Father... And the Son, who is begotten of the Father, be one, right? Um, if the Son is but a creature, then first comes the Father, then comes the Son. But if the Son is equal with the Father, 
then the son is begotten by the father, but is also with the father in the beginning. And what kind of narrative are you going to use to express this mysterious truth? But one that keeps going back and back to the beginning, right? That keeps revisiting and ringing changes on same the same elements, the same words. And now let's get to a couple of those words in the beginning. Okay. Now, in English, in English, beginning suggests um, um, the first in a series of things in time and uh, doesn't suggest more than that, right? Um, sometimes I have to, I would have to remind my students years, I had to remind them, look, when scripture talks about the beginning, it's not talking about the first domino in a series of dominoes. You flick the first domino and all the others fall. That's not what we mean when we say in the beginning. Um, and it's not what the Greeks understood by it either, nor the Hebrews. Okay, The Greek word that John uses is arche. And it is the word, as he well knew, that the Septuagint translators of the Old Testament into Greek. Maybe these were Jewish translators of the Old Testament into Greek because the Jews had gotten spread all over the Greek world and a lot of them that spoke Greek as their mother tongue. So they needed to have scriptures translated into Greek. Um, well, the, the, those translators rendered in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth uh, in the beginning as in Arche, okay? It's the same words that John uses here. Now, if we, th if we think as poets think, okay, then as soon as we write down an arche, okay, we've got to assume that everybody looking at this is hearing the words of Genesis. There's no doubt about that, okay? Um, it is, it's deliberate to bring all of that into play. Now, arche doesn't just mean the first thing. In, in Greek, it, it suggests the governing principle, what, what's really at the base of the entire universe, okay? So the Greek philosophers, some of them said, uh, Thales said it was water. He didn't mean that first there was water and then there was universe. He meant water is the fundamental stuff of all of the universe because it can be solid, liquid, or gaseous, right? Got to be water. Others said other things, okay? And the early Christians were quite aware that the Greek philosophers said um, that the RK of the universe was water or fire or atoms or number or whatever, okay? Um, the, the Jews, when they wrote, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, um, that, was, that was really, uh, they, they understood that that would distinguish them pretty sharply from uh from Greek philosophers, okay? The governing principle of the universe is, in Genesis, God's free creative act. God said, let there be light, and there was light, okay? Now, is it possible to go behind creation itself? The Greeks would have, to a Greek, that wouldn't even made any sense, okay? The, the question makes no sense. To the Jew, it might make sense, but it would be uh, blasphemous to try, all right? 
in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. If you ask, what did God exist before he made the heavens and the earth? They would, of course, said yes. But if you then said, well, uh, can we say anything about before the heavens and the earth? They would say, no. But John here is, this is the beginning before the beginning. And I'm not talking about time here. I'm talking about being, okay? In the beginning, as the fundamental reality of all that exists, okay? In the beginning was the word. And the word was before the face of God. And God was that word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was facing God. The word was in God's presence before the face of God. That's how the Hebrews would have put it before the face of very powerful. And God was the word, right? That's astonishing. What can you possibly mean? And um, uh, we can, I think, be led astray if we start thinking, well, you know, Logos there describes the order of the world. Um, it's a logical order. Uh, there's there's a pattern and a wisdom to everything. I think we're going to be led down the garden path there because uh, it, it takes us into abstraction rather than into person the person of Christ, okay? We don't want to go that route. And if um, we think of the, the Hebrew, the Aramaic, the Semitic that is underneath here, right? And John thinks in Aramaic and writes in his third language, Greek. The, uh, we might say that in the beginning was the speaking, okay? Very powerful. In, in Hebrew, uh, the word for word suggests an utterance, not something that you just put down on paper, okay? It's not an abstract thing. Um, the word of the Lord comes to the prophets, right? Of the Ten Commandments are known to the, the Jews, not as the Ten Commandments, but as the Ten Words. That is the Ten Utterances, the Ten Speeches, Ten Speakings, okay? Uh, there's a verbal force that we kind of miss in Logos, and we totally miss in the English word, word. We have nothing else to translate with which we're stuck with it. But when you think of a word, you don't think of an action. Um, but the Hebrew damar, uh, you, you are thinking of an action. You are thinking of somebody speaking to somebody else. Um, it's an utterance. And since there is no prophet here for God to speak to, nor even any created thing. We have here the mystery of God speaking not to himself, like, you know, an old lady with cats, uh, but uh, God, the Father, speaking the Son, who is his utterance, co-eternal with him, who is in his presence that is stands before him face to face. This is an utterance of love, and then we can go Trinitarian by saying that the love itself, proceeding from the Father and the Son, is itself a person in, in the Holy Spirit, okay? So in the beginning was the speaking, 
And this was a speaking, not in time, but eternal speaking. And the speaking was before the face of God. And God was the speaking. That was in the arche before the face of God. Right? They are distinct father and son, but they are equally God. This is, of course, mind-blowing. All right? All things... Now, I'm going to uh, try to bring out some of Greek here because, again, I'm going to translate it into English. It, it loses some things. Um, it, it, we, we have all things were made through him and that, you know, we're stuck with that. The Greek is a more basic verb even than to make. It's to happen, to come to pass, to be born, to be generated, to be begotten. Suppose I translate it this way, all things through him came to be, okay? Egenito, and anybody hearing that verb there, okay, and thinking like a poet would think, ah, uh, Genesis, because that's what you call that first book of the Bible. It's the book of how all things came to be, came into existence, okay? Um, through him, all things came to be. And without him, there came to be nothing that came to be, okay? That's sort of powerful stuff. So uh, what John is emphasizing there is not simply that um, God made things, but that God, the Son, through whom all things came to be that came to be, imparted being itself to them. Okay. Um, this is this is from a, a, a man, perhaps in his middle age, perhaps older, who was a fisherman in his youth, and he's broaching mysteries here that the Greeks themselves had never touched upon. Um, that for uh, God to create is to impart being itself, okay? Uh, but that's there in Genesis, because when God says, let there be light, and there was light, the sacred author, like a poet, is playing upon the very name of God, um, the name that you're not supposed to pronounce because it's holy, right? But it, it it's a name that, is rooted in the verb to be, okay? So the, what What is my name? Uh, you ask Mo, Moses, you, you, you want to tell him my name? This is my name. And then he gives a name that can't be uttered. And it's a name that's not a name because it's being itself. Uh, the Septuagint translators, the Greek translators, uh, you know, a century or so before Christ, they threw their hands up in the air and they said, the only way we can render this is ho'on, the being, okay? But God said, he or, he means be, or means light, he or, and he, same word, or light. God said, and God said, be light and be light. Right. 
then God saw the light that it was good. Well, that sense that God, who is the being, okay, being itself, imparts being to things and is creating them, I think that's here, okay? Um, all things that happen, all things that come to exist, come to exist through that word of God that is God, um, co-equal with him. This is a lot already. And in him was life. Life. Now, this is a tricky, tricky word. Uh, if, um, if, if you're talking about your, only about your physical existence, right? Uh, that is, um, you know, uh, how, how long is the life of man? Okay. Three score and 10 years. Four score if he's lucky, but he'd probably be decrepit. Um, you don't use the word that John uses here for life. Uh, you use the word bios, meaning, well, it's, it's the root of our word biology. Okay. If you are going to describe the events in somebody's life, like, you know, first he was born and then he went to uh, Harvard and he lost his reason and his faith at Harvard and he became one of the stupidest people in the country. Therefore, it made him very rich um, uh, until he met a holy man who brought him wisdom again. And uh, uh, <laughs> right. I mean, if, if, if you're telling that story, you're telling a Beals. OK, it's a biography. But life here means something beyond that. It's Zoe. OK, Z-O-E, Zoe. Um, how, how, we, we too, don't, don't we say that uh, that person who may be breathing and walking around and talking is not really alive, right? Because a person is dead inside. We're not talking about Bills. We're not talking, we're not saying he's a zombie. We're just saying that some principle of true life is lacking it, okay? Um, well, that's the Zoe, that's the life that Jesus promises throughout this gospel of John to give to people. It's not Bios, Zoe. Now, that does mean that the flesh is not important, as we're going to see. The flesh is crucial. But it does mean that we're not, we're certainly not talking about a prolongation of your biography. When uh, God says, I will give you, when Jesus says, I will give you life and life in abundance, he's not saying you're gonna live to be 95. Um, you can get life and life in abundance and die tomorrow. It's a different thing, qualitatively different. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And don't think it's accidental, okay, that John has used the word light, okay? John will say in his first letter, God is light, right? And in him, there is no darkness. Now, he does not mean God is sunlight or moonlight. Um, that light, uh, the created light, that light, very beautiful, may be the first of created things, but it's still just a creature, okay? By comparison with God, it has no existence at all. By comparison with God, it's darkness, just as everything else that is created is. It depends upon God for its very being. This is the uncreated light, 
This is the light that is God himself. In him was light. And this light was the life, Zoe, not Bios, of men. Now, our, you've got to understand uh, some of what I'm doing here is going to sound a little bit awkward because I'm trying to get at some of the emphases that we see in the Greek. Um, but um, our, the translation that we've got to put up with at, at Mass is dreadful. Okay, uh, here's a dreadful case, right? They didn't want to say man because uh, if you say man in a large congregation, a bunch of people are going to break out in hives because you use the word man to describe generally the human race, man, women, children, and so forth. Somebody will break out in hives. They go to anaphylactic shock. You have to call the ambulance, and it's just not worth the trouble. Uh, so you say the human race. Uh, but I'm sorry, the human race doesn't cut it here. Okay, can't. Because the word man is crucial, all right? It's not just the human race that we're talking about. When Jesus says that he is, uh, he is, he is uh, come to give light and life to men, he's talking about you, Joe, and you, Mary, and you, uh, Sandy, and you, Bill, about us all together, not as an abstraction, but as, uh, you know, uh, a community, okay? And singly, it for each person. And that is for each person in the flesh. This one, that one. And that is obscured if you translate it by the abstraction, the human race. I've never seen the human race. I'm never going to see the human race. I don't know if I want to see the human race. But I do want to see Bill and Joe and Anne and Mary, and I want to see them all together, too. And when I see them all together, I won't see the human race. That's just a concept in the mind. But he was the light of men, and light shines in the darkness. And he's picked up another word from Genesis, right? Now, darkness... In Genesis, uh, I mean, the early fathers were pretty consistent in interpreting it as non-existence itself, okay, uh, uh, or something very close to non-existence, like a kind of chaos. God created matter, but it had no form yet. It had it was just unformed, chaotic matter about which you could say nothing except that it was matter. And it could receive a form that it existed, but that's all. Okay, um, that that may maybe that was signified by uh, Moses. They would say when he used the word darkness, but that word is there in Scripture, right? Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was waste and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was stirring above the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Okay. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And the light he called day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning, one day, um, with heavy emphasis on the word one. Not first, one. Yom Echad, one. Day, one, just as there's one God. Anyway, um, the light shines in the darkness, 
And there's going to be a lot of darkness all throughout John's gospel. This is now not the darkness of non-existence before uh, creation. Uh, this is the darkness of human sin. All human sin is a turning away from God, but to turn away from God is to turn away from him who gives us our existence. It's a turn towards unreality, towards non-existence. It is a kind of death. Every sin is a kind of death, okay? Um, and the light shines in the darkness. And over and over in the gospel here, we're going to meet darkness. Um, the Pharisees, who were not happy that Jesus had healed the blind man and given him sight. Not happy. Blind man receives his sight. It bothers you. It makes you unhappy. What's, what's with that? Okay. Um, light and darkness will go all through the gospel, through John's letters. If we say that we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. Right? We are, we are darkness. Um, and, of course, in the apocalypse. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness, and um, here I want to uh, I, I want to focus on before I get to the word which made flesh, right? I mean, there's only so much I can do here, right? But um, the, a typical translation is not what I read out of uh, the King James version. Typical translation is the darkness has not overcome it. Okay, the darkness has uh, not vanquished it. Um, Okay, um, if that's what you've got available to you in English right now, then you got to use it. You have no choice. However, uh, it's not exactly what the word means. Comprehended is almost literally what St. Jerome used in Latin, translating it into Latin. Uh, et tenebrae am non comprehenderunt. Um, and so the King James translators threw their hands up in the air and they said, uh, you know, uh, we got to use the word comprehend here. We can't just use the word overcome. It doesn't quite, doesn't get it. Okay. Um, there, were, there, there were words for overcome that are not this word, right? And they're frequent enough. They're ordinary verbs to, to have a victory over. Uh, everybody knew that word. Okay. Just as if you were speaking English as a second or third language, you would know the word win. Okay. Um, it's a simple word. Well, the, the word Nike in Greek is all over the place, victory. Um, that the form of that word is not here. Okay. This word has to do with grabbing hold of something from both ends and dominating it that way. And that's literally what's behind why Jerome translated as comprehenderunt, because that's what that word means. You grab something all the way around, right? You've got it at both ends. You are bigger and more powerful than it. You have seized it and you control it. And uh, that's figuratively what we talk about when we say we comprehend something. Um, we're not just saying, oh, yeah, I mean, I kind of get that. That's not comprehension. Comprehension means you've got it. You've got it from the beginning, the end. You've got the whole thing. You've got it at both ends. And that's what the darkness cannot do. Okay. It cannot grab the light at both ends to dominate the light. It can't do it. And perhaps there's even here the sense that it can't understand it. Okay. 
but it can't grab hold of it, can't seize it at both ends. It's going to be important because forms of that same word are going to be used throughout the rest of the prologue of grabbing hold of something. Okay, he came unto his own, and his own did not grab hold of him, not comprehend, but uh, apprehend, to grab hold of. Okay, it's a form of the same verb that's used here. His own people did not grab hold of him, did not take hold of him. And then John says almost immediately, but as many as did take hold of him. His own people didn't take hold of him, but as many as did take hold of him. He gave power to become children of God who were born, who came to existence. Same verb, form the same verb who were born, who came to be, who came into existence, who were born not of blood, nor the will of man, nor the will of flesh, but of God, and the word was made flesh, and, and so on, okay? Uh, this is how this whole uh, prologue works. I mean, uh, there's so much here. Um, uh, I'll leave, give you one more thing before I get, get to the, uh, and the word was made flesh. Um, after he has said this mighty thing, and the darkness was not able to seize hold of it, okay, on both ends. He uh, retreats a little bit and gives us something perhaps easier for us to understand. But then he doesn't stay there. He goes back, right? Again, to Anthropos. And it came to pass that there was a man. He's in that verb again. It came to pass, it came to be. It came to be that there was a man. There was a man. And it's man, uh, and that's why you want, among other things, it's why you want. And he was the light, uh, and this life was the light of men, right? And now you get the same word in nominative singular. There was man, or it came to pass that there was a man. came, uh, came to be a man who was sent from God, whose name was John. Okay, now the, your lectionary translators of the New American Bible translators say a man named John was sent by God, and that's terrible because it uh, makes it seem like an ordinary thing, and it removes all the emphasis. And the it, John really does want the emphasis on that name, John. I am persuaded of it. There was a man came to pass. There was. It came to be a man sent from God whose name was John, boom, whose name was Yohanan. Not a common name in Hebrew scripture, but an important name. Uh, the two people in the Old Testament named Yohanan, uh, one was bad, the other was... Mm, uh, 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 Hananiah. Is the same name only with the Hanan first and the Yah second rather than the Yah first or the Hanan second. Um, and that too is not a, a promising name in the Old Testament. Uh, you have a false prophet whose name is Hananiah. So when they ask uh, Zachary, um, why are you naming him Yohanan? I mean, it's a good question to ask, right? I mean, why are you naming the boy Adolf? It's not quite that bad, but it's it's on that order, right? A, uh, unless it was a family name, why are you naming him that? Okay. Uh, but uh, Zechariah insists that his name is Yohanan. So there was a man sent from God whose name was, the Lord is gracious. 
that's the name. Okay. It came to pass there was a man sent. There was an apostle of God whose name was the Lord is gracious. And he said, oh, huh. I suppose he thinks that's important. Maybe one of the reasons why he has suppressed his own name throughout his gospel, because he doesn't want to put himself forward. But he insists upon this name here, John, Johanan. He is going to say, the law came from Moses, but grace, in Greek, charis, these thinking, hanan, and truth came from Jesus Christ. Okay. A man named John was sent by God. Doesn't cut it. There was a man sent from God whose name was, pay attention because I'm going to end the sentence with it, John. Okay. He was not the light, but came to be a martyr for the light. Came to witness to the life by his very life. There was the true light that lightens all men uh, uh, who come into the world. He was in the world and the world knew him not and so forth. Um, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. This is right after he has said that um, the, those who do receive him, who believe in his name, and a heavy emphasis on the word name, okay? Not a man called John was sent by God, uh, but there was a man sent from God whose name, important word, was John, important name who believed in his name, and what is the name of, of Jesus, Joshua, the Lord shall save, okay, who were born, who came to be, who had their being, not from blood, nor the will of a man, not human decision, the will of a man, nor the will of the flesh, but of God. So it's not flesh, and then immediately says, and the word was made flesh. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we say, wait, wait a second, what have you just done? Have you just contradicted yourself? No, I haven't contradicted myself. If, if, if you can understand, if you can understand what it means for God to create anything at all, what does not have existence, to give it being because he himself is being if you understand that then you understand that what i am describing here is of the same character only grander more more splendid that god should create anything at all is splendid but now that to recreate the world that is to bring light into the darkness of men's hearts um, he would not only create something fleshly, but be enfleshed himself. Uh, that is, it's a mystery of love, which the whole of the Old Testament does point towards, and yet it was still incomprehensible to the people of Jesus' time. Only after the fact do you see, oh yes, the whole of the Old Testament is pointing in this direction. But you would never see it. You'd never see it. Um, you you can only see it if it is made manifest to you 
in the person of Jesus, right? And the word was made flesh. And he pitched his tabernacle among us. He pitched his tent among us. And you may think of the tent of the flesh of the body. You may think of the tent of the womb of Mary, um, the mother, right, who dwelt with John after the crucifixion. Woman, behold your son, behold your mother. Um, there's a tiny dwelling place, tiny little tabernacle in which the glory of God dwelt, hidden from the world uh, in the darkness of the womb, not hidden completely from Mary nor even from Elizabeth and John, who leapt in Elizabeth's womb. Okay, and The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, at which point everybody in the church in the old days wouldn't genuflect, right? This is the greatest mystery of our faith. It's the final mystery of the whole divine comedy, uh, beyond even in the Trinity that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Um, well, I think I'd better stop here because how do you go beyond and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among You understand, by the way, you understand that um, if Christ is a creature, even if he is the supreme of all creatures, then we do not say the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It may seem like a little, little bit of a hairline crack between saying he is the co-eternal son, uh, co-equal with the father, and saying, no, he is the first of all creatures in glory and honor and sits at the right hand of the father. Between those two, it would seem like a hairline crack. It's an abyss that's as wide as is possible to be. It divides God from a being, even the highest of beings. Um, and that is why the early Christians fought so fiercely over it. Uh, uh, as soon as you lose, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among you, you lose that, okay? It's only a few generations later in modern times that you really cease to believe in God at all. Um, and you um, demote Jesus to uh, being a you know, really good teacher, which is uh, to, uh, kind of blasphemy, uh, an insult. Anyway, so um, let me take some questions now. All right, doctor, let's start with this question. From Michael. Michael asks, is a question regarding the difference between the word as logos and word as utterance. It seems the difference is on the speaker rather than the word itself. Could you elaborate on that perspective? Uh, well, I, what I, I meant to say was that um, the typical word in the Hebrew of the Old Testament for word, there are a couple, but the typical one is verbal in force. Um, it uh, suggests an action, uh, uh, an utterance, that is a speaker and someone to whom he is speaking, okay? Uh, hence, the thought of the Ten Commandments is the Ten Words. Um, or the word of the Lord came to me, uh, and this is the, a typical way in which Isaiah, for instance, will introduce a prophecy, okay? That there's, um, it, it, it's a thing that happened. It's not 
just something that's written down and delivered. It's, it's an event. Uh, and that sense is uh, amplified or it's maybe raised to an infinite degree when we consider here now that the, that the utterance itself is God, not just the speaker, but that which is spoken is God. Okay. Uh, the Father is God, and his utterance is before him, not as an abstraction, but as the co-equal and co-eternal Son um, uttered by him. His word, it's, the Son is the word of the Father, um, the utterance of the Father, the uttering, and but the Son, this utterance, is in fact himself, God. That's great. Yeah. Let's, uh, on, on the notion of, of the word, um, this next question written in here, even if St. John wasn't a Greek philosopher himself, <laughs> do you think he did intend to refer to the philosophical tradition bound up in the term logos? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. He, he, you know, he certainly would have, uh, hanging around Patmos and Ephesus and such places. He, he, uh, he would have encountered uh, that philosophical use of the word logos. Um, whether he was aware of Philo of Alexandria, who really used it, uh, Philo the Jew, Jewish uh, philosopher, uh, who re really tried to incorporate the Greek idea of logos into Jewish thought. That I don't know. I don't think that he, John, was trying to reconcile uh, the uh, uh, revelation that he had with Greek thought. I think he was. Uh, I, I don't. I don't detect any interest in him that way. So the, if he uses the word logos or word, um, and if he is aware that Greeks who think themselves wise and may be wise in many important ways, may be wise that they use the word, uh, how they use the word, I don't believe interests him um, unless to the extent that his use of the word corrects them. Um, what you're talking about as logos is not logos, uh, I, but I don't know. I don't know if he, he got it, into it with them to that degree. I think that the Hebrew word damar was in his mind when he used the word logos, more, more pressing on his mind than, uh, than, than Greek philosophy group did. But oh, I'm just speculating. Uh, okay, excellent. Now, Cecilia writes asking, uh, as she recalls from a long time ago, it was, she heard it translated, um, the darkness grasped it not. Is, is that a word that conveys both grabbing and comprehending um, and is grabbing hold of something, she writes, is that supposed to be defeating it or embracing it? What's the notion here? It could be defeating it, okay? Um, it, to seize hold of something and to take it to yourself in love, I think you would use a different word. Uh, to seize hold of something in order to dominate it, to uh, put it down, uh, or to, uh, well, to defeat it, the, the, 
would use uh, this. Grasp is a really good word. Um, trouble with grasp is that it, uh, in English, it might suggest something partial. So you say that you have a grasp of something. It means that you're able to raise your hand and grab hold of a piece of it. Okay. Um, that's, uh, in Latin, that would be apprehension, not comprehension. Um, so what we've got here is comprehension, um, the, the fullest grasp possible. Uh, but grasp is interesting because it does contain both senses, right? The literal and the figurative sense. The literal sense is that you grab something, you, you seize it. And the figurative sense, you understand it. Um, you, you comprehend it, right? Um, th th both senses were uh, uh, active in the Latin word, uh, Latin verb comprehendere and apprehendere, right? Um, and they're active in the English word grasp, except that grasp isn't as full in action as what we need here. Really interesting. You're making me think of, of Philippians and and St. Paul using grasped in there, do you know, that must be a different term. Well, uh, in fact, then let me look at that. You're thinking about the time uh, where he says he... In the Christ hymn, yeah, did not yeah. deem equality with God something to be grasped. That almost conveys to me, like, not the notion of the totality, you know, grabbing at both ends, but the last, the last bit is even let go of, you know, not grasped at. Uh, almost like the other side of the coin. Yeah, okay, let's take take a look at it. Because uh, um, that's another theme that runs through John's Gospel too, but a different one of Christ's emptying himself. But these must be two different words. These are the perks of having a Greek. Yeah, uh, in one, in one uh, case, uh, the, the form of the word to grasp is used for his taking on the form of a slave. Okay, there it's labon. It's a form of a slave. Uh, for the other, it's it's a it's a different it's a different verb. It's a, it's a, actually it's a kind of a more sinister verb. But the verb for grasp there is he took hold of the form of a slave. Alicia, up on screen, did you have your hand up before? Go go ahead. Yeah, unmute yourself there. Um, I work with children with the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, and I was teaching a couple of the prophecies from Isaiah to the children. And the one that the first one we always do with even the three year olds is the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And this another one that we work with the older children is is the one of the mountains and the valleys, which ends with the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. And my question is. Are those words in Isaiah of darkness and light used in the same way? Are they the same words that John uses? And is glory another way of saying light? Um, glory is a mysterious word. I'll go to the first question first. So okay. uh, Isaiah is written in Hebrew. And um, uh, so what we're really asking is, do, did, did the Jewish translators of the Hebrew text when they translated the Septuagint, uh, did they use the same words for, for flesh and light that John uses? And the answer to that question would be yes. Um, the, the, the sec, uh, the, another part of that would be, would is John uh, thinking about those passages, passages from Isaiah? Um, and I think the answer to that question is absolutely yes. Um, not only because Isaiah is the... Uh, uh, great 
prophet of the coming of the Messiah, but uh, it's John himself that is the Baptist who places the coming of Christ in the context. the way of the Lord. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, and that's in all the Gospels. Yeah. Right? But in, the, in that term, when he says, and all flesh shall see it together. Yeah. I mean, it's translated in different ways, but it really strikes me here that it's, I, I don't, I, I can't. It's a very well. powerful word, isn't it? Right? Yes. And all flesh instead of saying all earth. people or all mankind, he's saying right. all flesh, all, all living flesh. Yeah. humans. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you know what chapter that is in Isaiah offhand? I'm I'm gonna say Isaiah 40, the second. Oh, sure. The chunk. great the great chapter 40. Yeah, chapter um, 40. Yeah, okay. So I've got chapter There's just 40. so much there. It just keep it, it yeah. I, yeah. it's banging around with this prologue. Right. Um, okay. Kai opsetai pasa sarks. Yeah, sarks, flesh. Um, yes. Uh, it's the same word. Okay. Um, right. so the that's first, the most accurate translation. Okay. Well, um, different books of the uh, Old Testament are translated more or less well uh, by the Septuagint translators. Um, uh, but th there, okay, so, uh, it, it, it's interesting, and flesh is a crucial word throughout the Old Testament. The first time it appears uh, in uh, Scripture um, is, I believe, uh, when God is making Eve, is creating Eve, and he opens up uh, the, uh, the flesh of the man, okay? Um, he... He took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh. That's the first use of the word. And the rib, and he made it to a woman and brought her to, to the man. And the first really uh, striking use of the, of the word is in the voice of Adam. All right. So this is the first thing. At last. <laughs> right. This is not the first thing that Adam has said. This is the first thing that is reported to us. Okay. Because he's already named the beasts. He's given them the names. And that's a crucial thing. Uh, but now he is presented with Eve, and now we hear Adam's words, the first words of human being that are given to us in Scripture. And he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called uh, woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, and they shall be vasar echad, flesh one. And that echoes the creation of the light in the first day. Um, and there was evening and it was morning, yom echad, day one. And they shall be lashar echad, flesh one. And it's a really important word because that's the, I mean, that's crucial to the whole Jewish religion, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord, your God, echad, one. And that's why you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Because the Lord, the Lord your God, one. Okay. Um, so anyway, that that's um, when we get <laughs> Yom Echad, and then we get as a kind of echo of that, you know, not too much later, Vashar Echad, flesh one. That's crucial. And of course, this is what Jesus cites when he's talking about marriage, right? Um, 
the the oneness of the man and woman in marriage is reflected of the very oneness of God. So let's not talk lightly about bills of divorce, Jesus. It was not so from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, flesh, flesh is crucial. Flesh is crucial. You know what? If the uh, apostles and the disciples went forth uh, teaching all the nations that Jesus appeared to them as a spirit, big deal. Uh, uh, that was not anything striking. Oh, sure, anybody would be ready to believe that. What's the big deal there? You get spirits all over the place. Got one in the attic. No, I don't actually, but that's what people would say. Yeah, sure. Big deal. It was the resurrection in the flesh that was the big deal. That was the sticking point, right? Even the Corinthians that Paul preached to, they they, they stumbled over that. You, you, you want us to believe in a resurrected spirit of Jesus? That's easy. You want us to believe in a resurrected body? That's not easy. But it really is the redemption of all flesh. Right. What else is really exciting about that, though, when you say, you know, man, a woman or one is the how it raises the dignity of women. Oh, absolutely. You know, like from the beginning, this the original plan and we can gloss yeah. over that. But this is so like it raises women to really being so important to that unity is what brings the fecundity. Yeah, yeah everywhere else you go. Everywhere else you go, um, when the Iroquois defeated the Delaware Indians and they they basically cut them to pieces and they dominated them, right? Um, the Iroquois called the Delaware women, okay? Um, because the Iroquois were stronger than the Delaware. The Delaware were beaten badly. Everywhere else in the world, you get the the obvious comparison. You know, the guy over there is bigger than that girl over here. And, uh, you know, women are softer. Uh, they're 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 not physically as a group as strong as men. And I mean, any woman who has raised a healthy teenage boy understands this, right? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I was a late bloomer, so I, I, I probably wasn't stronger than my mother until I was around 13. But with other boys, it happens at age 11, uh, you know. So and I'm everywhere else. The, the obvious thing to say is, well, you know, they're women. That's not here. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and they shall be flesh one. And a one is so important because it reflects the onlyness the oneness of god and this is a great mystery yeah christ in his church yeah that's right that's right and uh you know it's so it's so kind of wearisome to uh to me um i you know i don't i don't want to watch women pretend to be football players half the time i don't watch want to watch men pretend to be football players because the game has gotten really game has gotten out of hand but what, what point, what's the point of that, you know? Um, that doesn't reveal the great mystery of womanhood. Uh, I think we know that. We, we know. We may not want to say so, but we know that. The womanhood is a great mystery, and it's not football playing. I want to, I want to get one more in up here. Okay. Uh, Christina, you had your hand up, I believe, earlier. Let's, let's go ahead and unmute yourself there. 
Yeah, I've been trying to figure out how to formulate this question. Um, but kind of going on with this theme of light and darkness and whatnot, you were talking about how in Genesis, that word for darkness is like, it was interpreted by the church fathers as like non-existence and whatnot. Or um, chaos. Or chaos, yes. Yeah. And I was just wondering if that same interpretation was then applied to night, because as you read from Genesis, like God called, when he separated the two, he called the light day, called the darkness night. Oh, I, you know, that's an interesting question. Uh, I don't know. Okay. Um, I, I'll have to, I'll have to beg off on that one. I don't know. Can I, so one way to look at it would be to say that we're talking uh, an obvious and legitimate way of interpreting it would be to say we're talking about uh, corporeal night, right? Um, that is the relative absence of light, not the total absence of light, but a relative absence of light. Uh, but it is still another way it would be to say, no, we're, we're talking about... Um, we're talking about uh, existence versus non-existence or good versus not the opposite of good because there is no opposite of good but the the the, the denial of good that that is evil um, the word night is often used in scripture both testaments to suggest evil um, or to suggest death or or non-existence uh, you walk in the night means that you are not walking in the light of God. You're not walking in the path of God. Uh, you are walking in in darkness. You are shrouded in evil um, and death. You're walking in the night. Uh, I'll have to. Th I'd have to think about that more. Okay. Um, certainly, night is an, an important motif in the Gospel of John. Right. Work while it is yet day. I think that's in John. For the night cometh where no man can work, right? And a day and night are, I think, crucial in uh, as light and darkness are in, in the first letter of John. It's very, very clear. I mean, nobody doubts this. The first letter of John and the Gospel of John are written by the same person. I think that uh, the Revelation, Apocalypse, is written by the same person, too. And there, uh, I mean, light and darkness, day and night are everywhere to be found as motifs in that vision. One more question. All right. We'll end with this one then, uh, okay. Doctor. How, a couple of people wrote in along these lines asking if you could comment on the place of the prologue at the end of Mass, at least in, in the, the traditional rite. Um, what, what was its effect there? I mean, James actually wrote into the chat as an aside that he gets a sense of mission, you know, ite misa est, and then right into the prologue. But could, could you comment on its place there? Yeah, I think... I think that all Christians ought to hear these words all the time. Uh, I don't know why they, I don't know why they did what they did there. I don't see any necessity for it. Uh, the last gospel is to be suppressed. I mean, that's basically the words that you get in the description of what the Novus Ordo is going to be. The last gospel is to be suppressed. I don't get it. I don't see why. Surely they didn't think that it was anticlimactic. Uh, it, it's not an afterthought. It's the very heart of our faith. It's the heart and the summit of our faith. Um, so I think it was most unfortunate I, 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 and unnecessary. Um, you could have 
and perhaps once people dial down their anger a bit, uh, it may occur to somebody to say, you know what, uh, why don't we have in the Novus Ordo also the last gospel? What's preventing it? What's preventing it? A lousy hymn that comes before it? Uh, not a good hymn, <laughs> but even a good hymn. What, what prevents it? The hymn? Well, sing the hymn if you're going to sing a hymn. But you don't have to leave. Sing the hymn. And then wait. And then let the priest read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. What? Why, is that, why, why can that not happen? Um, and it would be good for people to hear these words all the time. And not just if they happen to hit the right mass on Christmas, right? Really should be all the time. Well, you've given us a great gift tonight to uh, take into our Advent here. We've got <laughs> a couple of weeks before Christmas to be dwelling on this text. Thank you, Doctor. Um, doctor, could you close us in prayer this evening? Yes. Um, uh, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I, I will pray the psalm that I think ought to be associated with first chapter of Genesis and the first chapter of John. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou might still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands, thus put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, birds of the air, fish of the sea, and whatever passeth through the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. And may all of us, O Lord, as we look forward to the coming in the flesh, uh, the appearance in the flesh of our Lord, um, may we all buy our Lord Jesus be made worthy of this exalted place that you have set us in. In Jesus' name, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, Visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.